old becoming new, right? That God is doing a new work, that God is doing a transforming work uh, in and amongst his people. You could almost say that, that, that John captures Paul's sentiment in 2 Corinthians when he says the old has become new. And inasmuch as we love the new and we love the transformation and all that comes with that, Really, we, we can't dismiss the old because the old is what gives us the framework. It's what gives us the category to understand the new work and what's being accomplished in that. And so even thinking about our text today, right, and what's going to happen is not just that Jesus is going to turn water into wine, but there's this notion of purity and purification and how God accomplishes that that's at play. And it's not that God wants to eliminate purity. It's not that God wants to get rid of purity. God is going to redefine what makes you and I pure. He's going to transform the way that we understand being purified. Actually, he's going to bring it to fulfillment of what God always intended. That Jesus would be the sacrifice once and for all that would bear the wrath of our sins and and reconcile us back to God. And just to, to, to... prove that I'm not lying about the next couple of chapters here briefly, what we're going to see in, uh, later in chapter 2 and 3 and 4. At the end of chapter 2, God isn't going to eliminate his desire for you and I to be in his presence. He's going to transform how we come into his presence. That it's not through the temple, but it's through the person of Jesus. In chapter 3, in his uh, conversation with Nicodemus, there's going to be a new birth and a new life and a new way in which you and I are born and come to life, not just physically, but spiritually. In chapter 4, when he's with the Samaritan woman, it's not just going to be that he wants to eliminate worship, but he's going to transform how we understand worship and how we come into worship, that it's not reserved just for the Jews and not that it happens in one place, but that all of the people, all of the nations have access to God and they can access him anywhere in and through the person of Jesus, right? All of this transforming of the old into the new. And John is going to poke at this in a number of different ways over the course of the next few chapters in his gospel. But this morning, we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And here's uh, the the main idea of what we're going to see unfolding in this account. That the person and work of Jesus transforms his people. I mean, it's just really simple, isn't it? The person and work of Jesus transforms his people. Now, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, that you've turned from sin and embraced by faith what Jesus has done for you, then this is true of you. You've been transformed. That God has transformed you and praise God for that. And he's going to continue to transform you and conform you to his image. And if you're here this morning and you're not in Jesus, this is what he makes available to you. And this is what this story is going to unfold, that you and I can be transformed in the person and work of Jesus. And so this is exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see both the person and work of Jesus in transforming not only this huge crisis where there's no wine, he's going to transform old ways of thinking, specifically around purification, and he's going to transform his disciples as they witness this unfolding. Now, let me just say this before we get to the text itself, that in this account, there are a number of items that John's earliest readers would have, he would have assumed that they would have known and understood. Things that you and I might miss or pass over, or we won't uh, view them the same way, that, same way that they would have back then. They're not obvious to us. They're not clear to us in the way that they would have been clear to them uh, 2,000 years ago. 
And yet these items have great bearing on the text. And so here's how I want to come at God's word this morning, a little bit differently than we normally do, is we will spend the first half of our time just walking through the 11 verses, talking about what's happening, why it's happening, what it means, trying to explain the narrative and the story, what it means um, and how we're to understand it. And then the back half of our time, We're going to draw out some of the principles, uh, taking the narrative as a whole, drawing out some principles from the narrative around God's transforming work, seeing how they connect to the person of Jesus, how he's transforming in that instance, and how it relates to you and us, you and I. And, And so don't freak out when you look at the bulletin and you're like, he's been preaching for 20 minutes and we're still on point one. No, that's what I'm laying out to you right now, that we're going to take our time walking through and then move through those principles rather quickly. But before we go any further, what I'd like to do is I'd like us to pause uh, to ask God to open our our eyes to see and our ears to hear uh, all that he has for us here this morning. Uh, And as always, we'll pray for another church. Why don't you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your transforming power, how you're at work within us. Uh, God, how you long to... Um, open uh, our eyes to see uh, all that you're doing. And here, even in this account, as you'll do often in your gospel, using a physical item uh, to help us see a spiritual reality. Uh, And we pray that that would be true this morning. God, we pray that you would um, empower us to see and to hear and to understand, to respond to the very things uh, that we need in our lives. And so we submit ourselves now to you. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And I pray for a mountain Christian church and for Pastor Frank Melizzo. God, I thank you for that brother. I thank you for his faithful ministry and longevity uh, in that role. And pray that you would be helping them to see your transforming power, your transforming work uh, that's on display and happening within them as well. In the same way that we desire for you to do that for us. And so, Lord Jesus, uh, we pray have your way. We pray that you would come and accomplish your good purposes and open our eyes to all that you have for us. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to walk through this text. And as we do this, uh, one of the things that we want to make sure that we understand is as a believer, really, there's uh, there's a number of ways that we can look at this. But as we're walking uh, through this, if you're a believer, just understanding that you've been made purer by Jesus. That you're purified by him, you're cleansed by him, that he's redeemed you from all of the sin and the wickedness that exists uh, within you. And so as we walk through this text, let the reality of who Jesus is wash over you in ways that lead you to worship and trust and obedience in him. And for those of you who might be here this morning, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. And we're so glad uh, that you're here and you feel the freedom to come uh, and join us. We're thankful that you're with us. Um, but, but what you have to understand is this text is an invitation to you for a new life. And so maybe some of you are even sitting here this morning and you're thinking, I don't particularly like my life. I kind of wish I had a different life. Praise God, because what God wants to do is transform your life and give you the fullness of life that's found only in Jesus. So with that, let's start walking through the text and we'll just take our time. Here we go. Verse one, it says this on the third day. Stop. Got to talk about this. Got all of like three or four words into this, didn't we? And then we got to push pause. Okay, here's why we got to push pause. If you go back into chapter one, look at verse uh, 29. It says the next day. If you go to verse 35 of chapter 1, it says the next day. If you go to verse 43, it says the next day. And then you get here, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, on the third day. What's John talking about all these days? Well, if you add them up, there's six days. 
And it's meant to evoke creation imagery. It's meant to evoke creation language. What John is saying is God is initiating a new creation in Jesus. That's what he's trying to point us to. Something new is happening. And not only something new is being created, but God himself, right? The word made incarnate is present amongst his creation. On the third day, so much in that little phrase unfolding what God is doing. Notice what it goes on to say. What's happening on that third day? Well, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so here we find the setting for this story. It's at a wedding. Now, weddings in any culture, really throughout all of human history, have been a major event. They've been a major celebration. That's not uh, untrue in our day either, uh, although I think other cultures tend to emphasize the celebration uh, a little more robustly than we do. Uh, for us, a wedding, while it's a major event and, and, and certainly a highlight, uh, in this day and age, this really was the highlight of one's life in a way that, that, that just eclipsed everything else that would happen in their life. Because most of the people that lived in Jesus' day uh, were, were impoverished. They were the poor. I think 98 plus percent of the people found themselves in this place. And so for most of your life, you are eking out an existence trying to make sure you have something to eat at the end of the day. But for one short moment in time, the whole world laid out in front of you. In fact, they would literally wear robes and crowns sometimes and acted like kings and queens. And this special moment that, that, that just completely uh, distinct from what the rest of your life looked like. And it wasn't just for an afternoon and it wasn't just for an evening. In fact, it would go an entire week. Some of you are like, oh, that's a really long celebration. Others of you are like, I want to redo my wedding. I want a whole week. Like that, that sounds fantastic. Uh, but even today, there are other cultures that still do this. In fact, it's not uncommon if you go to a Mexican wedding uh, down in Mexico that they may uh, last an entire day or even a couple days. Uh, my cousin married a French girl um, and they got married in France. Becky and I went to that wedding and it was a two-day affair. Uh, and in fact, when uh, we say a two-day, it was a legitimate two-day affair because you stay up all night. Um, and, and then at like six in the morning, you get to eat French onion soup, which sounds awful when you hear it. But listen, when you stayed up all night, that is glorious. Okay. And, and then you crash and burn for a few hours and then you're back at it. And here it's a week long celebration. But notice the conflict, the issue, the problem, the dilemma shows up here in verse three. What does it say? When the wine ran out, uh oh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Can't, can't, can't you see you're kind of coming over? Wish the person Jesus like, hey, hey, they're out of wine. Now, what's the issue with that? Well, there's a number of issues with that. See, to have no wine is truly a major, major dilemma. Because wine was an integral part of the celebration. It, wine symbolized joy and exhilaration and celebration. And, and so to have no wine means you have no celebration, right? To run out of wine, not only would mean that there's no celebration, it would be an absolute loss of honor for the family. It would be a great dishonor to them within the community. It would be deeply shameful for them to run out of wine. And so this, this is not some minor inconvenience. This has massive implications for the family, potentially for generations to come. 
And so Mary comes to Jesus anticipating, hey, you can do something about this. Look at his response. I mean, it just seems so harsh, right? Jesus said to her, woman, yikes, can he speak like that? Yes, Jesus can say whatever he wants. We'll get to that here in a minute, okay? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's no way to talk to your mother, Jesus. And yet, it's exactly the way that when you're the second member of the Trinity, you should speak to your mother. Here's a couple things you should know. First of all, uh, that word woman, while it seems very harsh and derogatory to us, what might be helpful for you is understanding in the Greek, uh, he's basically saying, ma'am. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? You're like, okay, well, that's certainly far more respectful, but why in the world would he call his mom ma'am and not mom or mother or whatever he would typically call her? Well, there's clearly this sense of distancing that Jesus is making between he and his mother. Why? Because before Jesus was ever the son of Mary, he has always been the son of God. And there's an aspect to the uniqueness of Christ that John is beginning to help us see, right? We talk about the two planes. He, he, here's a picture from God's perspective. No, no. Before he's ever Mary's son, he's always been my son. And then Jesus says this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus is going to talk a lot about his hour over the course of uh, the, the, the gospel of John. In short, what the hour reference is, is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, so up until, until we get to chapter 12, it's always this future out there thing. But then you get to chapter 12 in John's gospel, and he'll say, the hour's come. My hour's here. And it literally is only a matter of hours at that point before Jesus will find himself on the cross. And so Mary comes to her son saying, hey, they're out of wine. And he's like, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so look at Mary's response in verse 5. This, this seems a little bit odd, right? And Jesus just said, it's not my time. And so Mary comes over and she says to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you. It's almost like she's ignoring her son's counsel. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you look at this and you look at Mary and you're like, man, she just kind of sounds like that really annoying, pushy mom. Right, that's just going to do her own thing. Mary sounds a little bit like the mom who thinks that her kid is better than your kid. Except what's the, what's the difference? Her kid really is better than your kid, right? I mean, he really is. When you're the mother of the second member of the Trinity, you get to play that card. But here's what you have to understand. It's, it's unlikely that Mary knows what Jesus is going to do. But she knows that he's capable of doing something. Because what Mary hasn't forgotten what the angels told her a few decades before. She knows what's true of Jesus. Right? She remembers what's recounted back in Luke chapter 1 when the angel comes to her and says, you're going you're, you're to give birth to a son and he's going to be the son of the most high and he's going to have the throne of David. Right? She knows that. She remembers that. On top of the fact that she's lived with Jesus for 30 years. Right? And at some point in time, you just begin to go, this one's a little bit different. <laughs> now, now, certainly early on, I, I mean, I don't know, maybe this isn't true. I'm guessing at some point early on in Jesus' life, Mary probably thought, you know, this parenting gig isn't as hard as everyone made it out to be. 
And then she started having other kids and went, okay, wait, never mind. Uh, It's just that this one really is different. But she's lived with Jesus for all these years. And, and, And while maybe he's not multiplying peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in kindergarten and passing them out to the entirety of the school or like as little boys playing after a rainstorm like might happen today, you could see the kids jumping in the puddles. And I, I don't know that Jesus would be like, hey, guys, watch this big jump, except no splash. Why? Because I'm walking on the puddle. Bet you can't do that. Right. I don't think Jesus did that as a kid. But no doubt Mary knew there's something different about him. She knew that she was a virgin when she conceived. She knew what the angels had told Joseph. She knew these things. And so she comes here in this moment to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Maybe she doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, but she knows something's going to happen. And then John, it's just this kind of odd shift. You're like, okay, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking. And all of a sudden, look at verse 6. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And you're like, who cares? Why are you giving us so much detail about some, some um, innocuous item? And loved ones, I would just tell you, anytime you're reading the scriptures and you see a biblical author referencing something that seems to be innocuous, especially in the narrative, you want to make note of that. Because a lot of times that, that, that's a primary piece of what they're after and what they're trying to communicate to us. And in fact, I would argue that's exactly what's happening here in John chapter 2. Right? Because he's talking about these stone jars Now, these stone jars are significant because these jars are ceremonially clean always. And they were used for the purification of the people. And so there's this deep connection between clean and purified. And of course, Jesus is going to play off that here in just a moment. And so John tells us about these jars. And verse 7 picks up with where we left off in verse 5. And he says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now the servants could have been like, dude, you're a guest. Don't tell us what to do. We haven't heard from the master of the banquet. But they go and do what Jesus tells them to do. They fill them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And look at what it goes on to say. It says, so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew... The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Here's, here's one of my questions. At what point did it become wine? Because part of what, what, what's happening here is, is Jesus tells these guys to go and do it. And, and, and particularly in verse 9, this parenthetical thought that John gives, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew what? That it was already wine? That it hadn't come wine? And why would, why would John say they drew the water and not the wine? And yet, when you get to the master, right, he has no idea what has happened. Only the servants were privy to, to, to what had just unfolded a few moments ago. And the creator, Jesus, in this miraculous and exceedingly gracious act turns water into the wine. He spares the family from this incredible shame, gives them this incredibly generous gift that, that, that will help to fund uh, the first part of their marriage because there's no way they're drinking you know, 120 to 180 gallons of wine at the rest of this um, party. And, and, and then I, I, you, you get to the master of the feast and he's like, where's this been the whole time? 
Now, sometimes, I, I understand this isn't the point of the text, but I think it does warrant a mention. Um, this, the, the text is not ultimately about alcohol, but I think we do have to just touch on this briefly. Let's not try to say that this actually isn't wine. Because what the master of the feast is saying is, this is the good stuff. Like normally at this point in the ceremony, we get the stuff in boxes, but like you've got the high dollar stuff here. And in that day and age, that was equated to the alcoholic content. That's what he's getting at. And here's, here's why I say this, loved ones. If alcohol was inherently sinful, if alcohol in and of itself was inherently sinful, there's no way God is using it in this moment. There's no way that God is going to connect it to the Lord's table and specifically to his blood. See, alcohol in and of itself is not inherently sinful. It's what you and I do with it that makes it neutral or sinful. It's like any other of God's gifts that he gives to us. It's to be enjoyed, but within the parameters and the confines that God gives to us, and certainly never to replace Jesus' rightful place as Lord in our life. And so on the heels of this proclamation from the master of the banquet, here's, what, here's how John closes this account. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so the, here the disciples believe, all right, in the intention of Jesus to reveal his glory and to lead to belief. And you might be saying, okay, fun story. I see the, transforma- the, you know, the, the transforming dynamic. What does this have to do with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, because that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time. And, and looking at not only the person and the work of Jesus transforming his people, uh, but specifically what this means for you and I. So five items uh, that we want to draw, five principles from this account that we want to draw out here uh, and, and, and make use of in our lives. Here's the first one. Look at verse 3. God's transforming power, and we see in verse 3 that you and I are confronted with our issue of shame. I mean, this is deeply profound, what's happening here. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, you and I are just like, oh, well, great, i got to drink iced tea for the rest of the ceremony. For those families, this is deeply problematic, because there would have been incredible shame that would have come with this blunder, that, that, that would have followed them potentially for generations if this doesn't get resolved. But what I want you to understand, and I want us to, 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 to wrap our arms around, is that this story is not only addressing the hypothetical shame of people that lived 2,000 years ago. It is confronting and pointing towards the very shame that resides inside of all of us. It's confronting our issue of shame. You might be sitting here saying, okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, let's start with this. What is shame? Well, shame is something you and I can trace all the way back to the garden. You can go all the way back back to Genesis 3. That's where we first are introduced to shame. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and then God shows up, and what do they do? Tell me. They hide. Why? Why? Why do they run and hide? Because they're ashamed, right? They're ashamed. They know inherently that there's something wrong with them with respect to God. Loved ones, this is why you and I hide. 
This is why we hide ourselves from one another, right? We don't give everyone the fullness of who we are. I just give you bits and pieces of who I am, or I just present the part that I want you to see, because I think that's the part that you'll like or that you'll affirm, but I'm going to withhold this whole other part of me, because, man, if you knew that, I'd be ashamed. This is why uh, spiritually so often in the American church we put on a mask. We put on a facade. We pretend to be someone that we're not, because, man, if you knew who I really was... See, shame is the sense of us being at odds with God. Shame exists because we've sinned, and we know that our sin makes us enemies of God. And our shame is deeply connected to our sin, right? It's deeply connected to rebellion. Uh, Both sin that we've committed, and I think this is important, shame is also tied to ways that we've been sinned against. So it's not just my failure. Sometimes it's part of living under the brokenness of this world. But all of that leads to shame and to hiding. And if you want to, the most classic example of this is watch a toddler when they've been outed on something. Right? When a toddler gets busted, what do they do? They go run and hide. Right? They, 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 they go run and hide behind an object, or maybe they'll crouch down low. My favorite one is, is when toddlers, like, they'll cover their eyes, and they're like, if I can't see them, then they, they can't see me. I'm invisible. Right? Although plainly in sight, but it's all a form of hiding. And see, in this account, the deep embarrassment, the deep shame that, that lurks at the reality of no wine is really reflective of the same way that you and I don't really want to be known and exposed because if we were, what people would see is the brokenness and the sin inside of us. It's why we hide. It's why we lie. It's why we put on masks. It, 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 it's why we, we pretend and fake with each other because of the shame and the sin that resides within us. And because of this, Right In all of this, this is why we experience shame. Because what you have to understand is that sin is alive within all of us. Right? That we, 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 while, while we're freed from the curse of sin, we are not freed from the totality of sin in this lifetime. lifetime. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6 and 7. When, when, when he talks about uh, that I don't do what I want to do, I do the things I don't want to do. And I'm wrestling with sin, and yet I know that I'm freed by the power of the cross and what Christ has done. Right? We fail. We fail because sin is in us. We fail because sin limits us. We fail because we live in a broken world. And in that, we experience shame because shame is tied to sin. And sin not only corrupts the totality of the world, it corrupts the totality of you and I. You're like, man, this is a real bummer. Like, when do we get to the good news? When do we get the good stuff? Like, I I want nothing to do with this. How do I escape from this? Right, where do we escape from shame? Now, there's no shortage of places that you and I will run to to try to find that outlet, but there is only one place. And I would argue that's the beauty of this account right here, is that in only one person is there an escape from shame. And it's in the transforming power and person of Jesus. Because what he's going to do in a moment is he is going to spare these families from this incredible shame. And in the process, it's a picture of how God is going to spare you and I from the shame of our sin. And one of the things that John loves to do in his gospel is John loves to use physical examples to help explain spiritual realities. 
We will see this over and over and over again. And so here, this is not about wine and a wedding. It is about purification and shame and being cleansed and being made right with Jesus. He's just using wine at a wedding to depict that. And we're confronted with our own shame, our own sin. Maybe even right now in this moment. Here's my question for you. What are you going to take that? What are you going to do with that? See, because you've you've really got one of two options, right? One is you just put on this backpack and you just start loading it up with rocks. And every single time, right, that that next thing happens in your life, it's just another rock in the backpack. But eventually it's going to be so crippling and so crushing that it will literally bring you to your knees. Or you can have Jesus come and take that for you. Because that is what he did at the cross and in his resurrection. It can be released in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to point us to here in just a moment. God's transforming power. First of all, we're confronted with our issue of shame. This is what needs to be transformed. Secondly, look at verse 4. Notice the process uh, that begins to unfold. Verse 4, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Here's the principle I want us to grab from this, loved ones, is that we can trust the timing of God. Right, when it comes to the transforming work of God, the transforming power of God, that we can trust the timing of God. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not time. And here's what you have to understand. The timing of God is always perfect. Did you hear that? I didn't say sometimes. I didn't say most of the time. I didn't say 99% of the time. God's timing is always, always, always perfect. Jesus knows his hour. And God's transforming work is right on time. And I think the applications for you and I of this are seemingly endless. But here's a few of them. The timing of God's work to change hearts and minds is always right on time. And that's applicable for you. That's applicable for your spouse. That's applicable for your kids, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your friends, for your siblings, for your parents, for your classmates, for whoever it is. Right? You can trust that the timing of God's work to change hearts and minds is right on time. It will happen in its perfect time. The timing of God to transform some situation or circumstance in your life is right on time. It's not late. It's not early. It's not delayed. It's not slow in coming. It is right on time. And the timing of God to transform something in you is right on time. We can hear this, and I think for a lot of us, we agree in our head, but maybe we wrestle with this in our heart. Why? Well, because we find ourselves at odds with this because I want God's timeline to match up with my timeline. And usually I want God to show up sooner than he actually does, right? But if the timing of God is always right and the timing of God can be trusted, here's what you and I need to understand. If we feel like God is late, in reality, we're early. And if you feel like God is early, you're late. Because God's timing is always right on time. If there's a discrepancy, it's on our end. And so if God has you waiting or if God has you hurrying, God knows when the hour is. You and I don't. And so God help us to trust the timing of God. Thirdly, look at this, verse 5. And I would say even 7 and 8 is a part of this. Uh, But the third principle, right, this transforming power of God. We confronted with our issue of shame. We're going to trust God's timing. And then thirdly, we see, we, we learn the wisdom of obeying Jesus. Now, when Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, that's good counsel for everyone for all of time. 
You're just like, yeah, that's for me. And I need to hear that too. When, when, when Jesus says do something, I need to go, yep, I need to do that. That's a good thing for me uh, to do. And so that's not just for the servants. That's for you and I as well, loved ones. But here's what I want you to see and think about this for a moment. Think about what's unfolding from the perspective of the servants and how the story unfolds. Because what's really interesting about this is that the revealing of this miracle is dependent upon the obedience of the servants. Right? Jesus says, fill the jars, and they go and fill the jars. Jesus says, here, take this to the master of the ceremony, which might be like, this is kind of a dicey proposition. We don't know if it's wine or water yet, right? But they're like, all right, here we go, and, and off they go. But here's my question. What happens if they don't obey Jesus? Like, what happens? I mean, at the very least, there's less wine or no wine uh, for the celebration and for the family. They're robbing the family of the joy and generosity of Jesus. Maybe even putting them back in a position of deep embarrassment and shame. I think a far um, more substantial dynamic is that Jesus is not revealed. Now, he was only revealed to a handful of people in this account. Most people didn't know what happened. But when I say that Jesus is not revealed, what I mean more specifically is for them, there was a personal revelation of God in Jesus to them. And they would have missed that and they would have missed the miraculous work of God in that moment. And love one, I ask you, what is it that you and I miss when we choose disobedience over obedience? Right? Have you ever thought about that? That it's not just that I'm in sin and rebellion, but maybe I'm missing some aspect of revelation or maybe I'm missing some uh, dynamic of the work of God that had I been obedient, I would have seen. And these servants could have missed so much had they just disregarded what it is that Jesus is telling them to do. And yet they've learned the wisdom of obeying Jesus or they were at the very least terrified of Mary and they did what she told them to do. But it was to their blessing and benefit and our willingness to submit our person and our will to another is is not something that is natural or intuitive for us, right? We fight this all the time. And if you don't believe me, just tell your spouse, I'm going to do everything you tell me to do this week or tell your parents, I'm going to do everything you tell me to do this week. And I bet you don't get to tomorrow morning before you're fighting against one of those, right? we, We fight this. And yet this is part of the transforming work of Jesus. That he makes us not only willing, but even desirous to submit our lives to him. This is actually some of the strongest evidence that we actually belong to him. That we do the things that he calls us to instead of just living for ourselves. We learn the wisdom of obeying Jesus. Fourthly, and I really think this is the point that John is driving at. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. That we celebrate our purification in Jesus. There's two dynamics here, right? There's both the dynamic of celebration and there's the dynamic of purification. Let me start with purification. It's this notion that we're cleansed, that I'm made pure. Uh, other biblical language is that, that, that uh, I have the righteousness of Christ, that I'm freed from sin. All of that is in view. All of that is in play with respect to what's going on here. And the transforming work of Jesus is that he purifies us. But it's not just that he purifies us, but there's an aspect or an element of celebration that's tied to that. In fact, two different dynamics play out here in verses 6, 7, and 8. Let me uh, touch on both of them here for just a moment. First of all, uh, a transformed means of purification. 
So here's, here's what I think is the profound dynamic, what's unfolding here in these verses. Is Jesus, right, John tells us about these jars in verse 6. And then in verse 7 and 8, Jesus hijacks the purpose of the jars from being cleansing water. Water that was meant to cleanse and forgive. And he's like, nope, you're not going to be that. You're going to be wine. And he's transforming the means of purification. Why does he repurpose them? How can he do that? Here's how. Because in the process, what Jesus is revealing is that he is the fulfillment of all of God's activity in the world. See, what he's saying is there's no longer a need for ritual cleansing. There's no longer a need for sacrifice because one has come who will cleanse us for all time. It's not a temporal cleansing. It's not something we have to keep coming back to. It's total and full and complete that Jesus will bring purification for all of time for you and I. That's what he's communicating in this moment. We don't need these jars anymore. I'm here I will do this. So we celebrate. But just to prove this point, this is uh, exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Listen to what he says. Really, I want to get to verse 9, but I love 5.8, so we're going to start there first. Uh, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to what he says next. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we also be saved by his life. Say, man, you don't need ritual cleansing. I have made atonement for you. Jesus has provided the way out And here's what's crazy, I've alluded to this already, is we don't know when the actual transformation of the water to wine happened. And you know why I think John doesn't put it in there? Because he doesn't care. Because because it's, it's, it's insignificant compared to the transformation of what Jesus is doing with respect to purification. So he's like, who cares when it becomes wine? What I care more about is what Jesus is actually doing. There's a far greater transformation in view And so in the presence of Jesus, the old form of purification no longer has any purpose or no no longer has any function, right? You don't have to keep washing. You don't have to keep sacrificing. That doesn't matter because Jesus will now accomplish this. So, hey, these stone jars, let's repurpose these and let's make them into something that we celebrate with. And so not only is there a transformed means of purification, there's a celebration of Christ's work. That's what's really going on, right? The celebration here is tied to the work of Christ. Right, we're meant to celebrate God's redemptive work. We celebrate what Jesus has done. Not just that now we have some good drink to last us for the rest of the party, but the far bigger issue of who he is and what he's accomplishing. It's a celebration of Christ's work. Now, loved ones, can, can we be honest that as Christians, sometimes we're just not very good at celebrating? Like, sometimes we're just kind of stiff, kind of boring, um, don't really know how to celebrate. And I got, I got to be honest with you. I don't, I don't totally get it because who has more to celebrate than followers of Jesus? No one does. No, 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 no one even comes close to all that you and I have to celebrate in Christ. We, we should be quick to celebrate him and quick to revel in and delight in and enjoy the fullness of who he is and what he's given to us. Let me ask you, do you celebrate what God has done? 
Do you need to get better at celebrating Jesus' work? Do you maybe need to be a little bit more intentional about joyously appreciating the person and work of Jesus in your life? Think of it like this. Is life more enjoyable in Jesus or apart from him? You might be like, Mike, that might be the dumbest question you've ever asked. Okay, if that's true, then why aren't we better at celebrating? Why why aren't we quicker to, to let joy exude from us as we celebrate him and his work? I'll go a step further. I actually think that our failure to celebrate has, has had a negative impact and effect on our witness to the world. We talk about the gospel being good news, and people look at us and go, there's no good news in you. If it really is good news, then there should be an aspect of celebration that's tied to it. We celebrate our purification in Jesus, both the transformed means of purification as well as a celebration of his work. Here's the final thing. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. I just wrote this down, that we await the arrival of the true bridegroom, right? We await the arrival of the true bridegroom. Now, this final item, it fixates on two of the characters in the story that normally would have been far more central to the plot of the story. Uh, but, but in this particular account, really, they just hang out on the periphery. And part of that is because the author knows they're not really the focal point of the story. Jesus is the focal point of the story. But what I think John is even trying to demonstrate for us is having them at the periphery is that not only are they not the focal point, But I think John is maybe even beginning to make a case of what he will ultimately uh, articulate in Revelation 19, that Jesus is the true bridegroom and that Jesus is the master of the ceremony. In fact, John the Baptist is going to tell us in chapter 3 that Jesus uh, is the bridegroom, not of this particular uh, wedding, but of, 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 of the totality of our existence. And so you have this playing out, and, and, and then you have in verse 11, the disciples um, seeing this, and they're coming to a place of belief. Here's what I want you to consider. The master of the banquet is a very honored guest in any wedding. The bridegroom is one of the two people that everyone comes to celebrate at a wedding. And when this account starts, Jesus is merely someone who's attending and bestowing honor on the bridegroom. But 11 verses later, when this thing is over, we don't really care about those individuals. But all of the honor and all of the celebration is tied to Jesus. Which is why we would say that he is the true bridegroom and he is the true master of the ceremony. In fact, here, let me read to you from Revelation 19, uh, which John also writes. He's talking about the the final marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Which is really a stretch because the, the bride hasn't made herself ready. The bride has been made ready by Christ. In fact, John says this in the next verse. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You know why we get to put on white robes? It's not because you and I are righteous. It's because we have the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us. And he goes on and says this, And the angel said to me, Write this, listen to what he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And see, what, what, what he's saying is that the honor for the guest is found in being included in the ceremony at all. In, in fact, those who, who are in opposition to Jesus actually find themselves as the subject of God's wrath later in that chapter. But those who are invited belong to him. 
right? Not simply to attend, but to be joined to him. Loved ones, this is the gospel that we're drawn in by the finished work of Jesus, that we're able to come because of his purifying work, that he eliminates sin and shame from within us. And he does it in his perfect timing, calling us to celebrate with him, uh, but inviting us also to celebrate alongside him. That the old has been made new, that it is transformed. The person and work of Jesus transforms his people. And he's transforming us. And in response to that, we want to confront our sin and our shame. We want to trust the timing of God. We want to learn to be obedient to Jesus. We want to celebrate Jesus and await his arrival. At which point you and I will experience the final and most glorious transformation. When for all of eternity, we will dwell with our king. God help us that we would wait faithfully until that day when he transforms us in totality. Let's pray. Gracious and good Savior and Lord, we thank you for your work. God, we thank you for the ways in which you are revealing not only miracles and care and concern for others and uh, the removal of potential shame and embarrassment. But God, the far deeper gospel dynamics of what you do with our sin and how you reconcile us unto yourself, how you make us like you and we, 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 we bear your righteousness. And because of that, we're invited not, not only to attend but to be participants, to be joined to the bridegroom. And so God, I pray, I pray that we, you would help us to marvel at your transforming work. God, I pray that we would revel in your goodness, that we would delight and celebrate in all that you've done. God, help us to be honest about the issue of the sin and the shame inside of us. Help us to trust your timing. Help us to be obedient. But God, in all of that, leading us to the place where we would celebrate your purifying work on our behalf, restoring us to God and helping us as we await the final coming of the true bridegroom, the true master of the ceremony. God, would you make this true in our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. This closing song that we're going to sing, you can stand.